featuring Cambridge University's Dr Chris Smith, this is Ask the Naked Scientists. Join the conversation. Join the conversation. You're with Cape Talk. And... uh... A very good morning if you've just joined. The Naked Scientist is here all the way from London to answer your questions. Welcome, Chris. Great to have you. Morning, Clarence. How are morning. you? I'm, I'm great, thank you. I'm, I'm taking some leave after today, so I'll be on the beach for the next uh, one and a half weeks, and I'm looking forward to it. Oh, I'm jealous. It's getting cold here. I have no doubt. I have absolutely no doubt. Well, it's just beautiful where I'm going to. It's called the Eden District uh, for obvious reasons. Just absolutely beautiful. Southern Cape coastline, divine. And you should uh, try and uh, make a turn, especially at this time. I'll come and join you if I get the invite. <laughs> We've got somebody on the line for you. Shireen from Pylnans. Go ahead. Um, good morning, Clarence and the doc. Um, my question is about the effect of COVID-19 on the brains of people on the autism spectrum. Um, in the paper by the, um, the National Institute of Health of America, they observed that there was regression on the children on the spectrum. But that was mainly because of the um, um, therapies were stopped during lockdown. But my question is about the regression that is caused by the neurological effect of the virus on the autistic brain especially on adults in the in the on adults on the on the autism spectrum is that regression permanent and what happens when the person gets infected again do they regress further hi shireen well at the moment we are still studying how covid affects the body and the aftermath of what some people dub long covid and it's all very unclear A picture is beginning to emerge and there are effects which are caused directly by the virus and it does appear to get in some people into certain parts of the body and directly damage tissue. This includes the heart, other organs and there are stories and studies of the virus getting into the brain and damaging bits of the brain. Then there's the longer term and in people who recover from acute infection where the virus may not have been anywhere other than in their lungs... There are then subsequently health effects where we think possibly this is down to the immune system. The virus has provoked a state of possibly autoimmunity where the immune system turns on certain tissues in the body itself or the overall inflammatory state in the aftermath of the infection seems to then cause a legacy effect damaging other tissues. And this may be some of what people dub brain fog. But then there's nothing to do with the infection. There are the social impacts of all of this. And you hinted at one of those in this question, which is that some people rely on therapy for management of an ongoing condition to intervene in a a condition for which they need support. And of course, young kids, babies are being born all the time and they rely on socialisation, playing with their parents, playing with their relatives, playing with their friends in order to develop all important social skills. And if an individual is not quite so well endowed with some of those social skills, we know that they can be reinforced and supported and improved by doing more of that. It's a bit like a tennis player improves their game by playing tennis. So what we don't know is the impact that that has had on those sorts of things. Because there there have been papers published, and in fact we reported on one on The Naked Scientist about a year ago, a lady who showed that babies had delayed language that were born during lockdown and had some delayed social skills. They weren't so good at waving 
bye-bye to a person. Little kids, when they're six to ten months, of course, they wave bye-bye to people when they leave the room. They uh, react accordingly when people arrive. She found that sort of language was, or that sort of behaviour was delayed. So one has to be very careful about attributing all these effects directly to an effect of infection and the virus going into a brain because there's so many moving parts to this story, the social impact, the nutritional impact if people didn't get the normal food they would get or they didn't play in the way they normally would. And then there's the other health effects. They didn't catch other infections at the right time. They caught them later and they caught them all at once. And at the moment, scientists are trying to disentangle all of these possible effects to try to work out what has or hasn't had an impact on people, including people with autism. So I don't think I'm in any, we're in any position as a scientific community to know exactly and discreetly what has happened or what hasn't happened in the aftermath of COVID and COVID infection to certain groups of the population. And people are still studying this now. And thank you for that call. Let's move on to Brian's in with a question. Uh, Clarence, ask Dr. Chris, Dr. Chris, what is the purpose of the dust coating uh, on the wings of a moth? Well, the way that moths' wings have colour, everyone thinks that moths have colour a bit like birds' feathers. And in some feathers, they do the same thing as moths, actually. But there's two ways you can have colour. You can paint a surface a bit like you might paint your gate or paint your car, and you put a colour onto a surface. Another way that you can give a surface colour is to have structural colour. And what that means is that you have a configuration of particular layers and cells with chemicals in them so that when light goes into them, the light has its properties changed in the same way that if I pour a bit of oil on water and I shine light on it, I get a rainbow effect. You can use the presence of the oil on the water to create an interference pattern and produce different colours. And so some insects, including moths, will do structural colour in this way. They have a, a particular configuration of cells containing certain chemicals in certain proportions and light will travel different distances and be absorbed in different amounts by these different layers and then bounced back out. And this will have the effect of giving them their colour. So when you see the, the dust, they've, they've got this scaling on their wings which give them their colour scheme, or at least some of their colour scheme, and that will those are dead cells that will rub off. And if you rub on them, then you're taking away some of their pigment cells. I don't know if they also have other things other than just dead cells there which, which have some other purpose, some other dusting, but I think most of that is the cells that, that are the surface cells to give them their colour and wing, wing integrity. Okay, now we're going to voice notes. Plenty in. A reminder, it's our weekly interaction with the Naked Scientist. He's with us till about 10 o'clock. And if there's a question um, that you have for him, you're welcome via WhatsApp at 0725671567. Your call's at 0214460567. Let's take a listen, Joe. Hi, this is a question for Dr. Chris Smith. It's Neil here from Belkowitz. Um I've heard that the oldest plant species in the world is named or uh, uh, predicted to be the cycad uh, family. Um, is it true? And if yes, how does it? How did that come to? And do they only form in one species, or is the fern and those type of plants in a similar category? Good morning. Well. The story of evolution of plants is, is quite an extraordinary one, but life didn't begin on land, and certainly not plant life. 
all life began in water. And the first life on Earth began about 4.1 billion years ago. And we've got indirect evidence for that life in various formats, some of it coming from Western Australia, where there are some of the oldest rocks on Earth. So we know that there were life processes getting going. And what we know is that those life processes to start with were incredibly simple, but they did use the sun. And there are structures called stromatolites, which are mushroom-shaped accumulations or assemblages of material made by primitive microorganisms that had the power of, of, of photosynthesis. They could capture energy from the sun, capture chemicals from their environment, merge the two, and use them to grow. So the first forms of life that were ancestors of plants were actually four billion years ago and were single-celled organisms. And life stayed like that in a pretty boring, mundane way on Earth for billions of years. And then something changed. About half a billion years ago or so, we began to see interesting things begin to happen. And that's when things began to team up as multicellular organisms. And then we got more complicated algal forms in the sea. And then about half a billion years ago or thereabouts, Ordovician sort of time, we began to get invasion of the land. And that's when plants colonised the land. And that's when plants then began to become much more complicated. But of course, there were no insects around at that time, because all the animal life was still in the sea. So you couldn't rely on pollination by insects and things, so there were no flowers, that kind of thing. So the species were self pollinating, or self reproducing, different sort of thing than you'd see in, a, in the tropical rainforest today. And some of those plants then went back into the sea. And there is evidence that things like seagrasses, having grown up on land, then reinvaded the ocean. So there was a sort of circular story there. But then as animals invaded the land and we got insects, then there was a power to, to pollination and having flowers that could attract insects. So whether or not it was cycads that were the first plants on land in that story, I don't know. I'll look that up and I'll come back to you with that one. But certainly that is how the story worked with microorganisms working out how to capture the energy of the sun, then safety in numbers coming later where lots of individual cells team up to make a community that then works as a, as a metazoan organism, a group of, of cells working together as a community, and then that turns into more complicated plants in the sea, and then they invade the land and turn into all of the diversity of plants we have on land today. And now we're going to Paris in Bloberg. Uh, welcome, Paris. Morning, 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 Chris. Here's a question. I was watching an insert, or I read an insert on Facebook the other day. It said that sleeping on your left hand side of your body isn't ideal for your digestive system. So I don't know if that's a myth or not. And if so, what is the ideal position to sleep at night besides snoring? You know, trying to eliminate snoring. What's ideal for your body to perform correctly? People have tried to look at this, whether it's better to sleep on your side, on your back, on your front. And there's some wishy-washy, not very solid, robust science about whether people dream more when they're lying on their front or on their back. I don't think there's a solid story there that makes it clear to us in a rigorous and scientifically reliable way what the answer to this question is, with some exceptions. A woman who's pregnant, we're always careful about, or we, we used to make a lot more of this when we were doing resuscitation and things if a pregnant woman collapsed, but because a woman who's pregnant has a big mass in her abdomen and there are big blood vessels that go up and down through the length of the body and they're off to one side of the spinal cord, if you lay someone on the side where their blood vessels are, they've got more pressing on the blood vessels, especially the veins, which are floppier, so that might have a difference. But putting that to one side... There's not really any compelling evidence that you should or shouldn't sleep on one side, the other, your back or your front. 
If you are carrying a bit too much weight and you lie on your back, that's probably going to be a, a, a comfortable posture for you because otherwise you'd be lying on your tummy and that might be uncomfortable and that can encourage people to snore more and that can encourage people to, to wake up periodically through the night because your airway can become floppy and blocked because you're laying with your with your head backwards. So that might be a consideration, but in a person who doesn't have any other health factors or any other risk factors or, or reasons why any particular posture would be advantageous, I don't think there's any strong case for sleeping in a particular position. And I think from an evolutionary standpoint, if it was that easy to take years off your life and harm your health by sleeping in a certain position, we would have evolved a different shape so we couldn't sleep in a bad position, if you saw what I mean. Now we're going, and thank you for the question, Barris. Let's go to the voice notes again. Joe's got a good couple there. Uh, he's finding it, and he rolled them out. Um, right. Hi, this is a question for Dr. Chris Smith. It's Neil here from Belkmoot. Um I've heard that the oldest plant species in the world is named or uh, uh, predicted to be the cycad. We, we just heard uh, that one. Can we have the question about deja vu? Because that would be, be a good one to put in now, wouldn't it? Joe says it's Friday. Please forgive us. Okay, let's take a listen to the to the right one, uh, Joe. Morning, Clarence and Dr. Smith there. This is Flores from Pusta. Clarence, I myself confess dog lovers such as yourself. I have a 16-month-old mixed bull terrier and an 8-year-old uh, female Chloe. Um, she's a miniature Doberman, a pincer. She is bullying uh, Brutus when we're not home. But when we're home, they're fine. They're playing. They're running. And I just want to know why has Brutus perhaps done something? Because he always dug holes to get out. I have closed off so many holes. As soon as he's out, he's not running away. He's just outside, lying at the gate outside, does not want to be then inside. So I'm not sure what has Brutus done that Chloe is bullying him when we are not there can you explain perhaps the behavior i the two i can certainly try i can certainly Bye -bye. try interesting question and dogs have a, a complex social species arrangement and if you look at dogs they're pack animals and they're pack animals that have a pecking order literally in this case and there is a top dog hence the expression and then there are underlings and this comes with age and wisdom and experience and character. And when you're in the family, the dog sees you as top dog. And if you have a group of dogs, you are top dog. As long as they're well behaved and you train them and so on, they do your bidding. You're top dog. But if you remove yourself from the equation, and I think the critical thing was you said when we go out, as soon as you remove yourself, now there needs to be a new top dog. And so the dog that's dominant, the one that thinks, well, I'm in charge here, that one will fight for pole position and will bully the others into submission. And I, th I think, I'm not a dog behaviour expert, but I think that is probably what's happening here. And when you're at home, you are the top dog, so everyone knows where they stand in the social pecking order. You take yourself away, this is now an abnormal situation, and they start fighting for who's going to be in charge, and the little one wins. Chloe and poor Brutus. Okay, Denise wants to take us to, is it our higher mind, Denise? I would like to ask the doctor if he can give me more information about the pineal gland, P-I-N-E-A-L, and what is its use? What is it, you know, why have we got it? 
Hi, Denise. The pineal is part of your brain's hypothalamus, which is the complicated, complex, connected series of circuits which form the base of the brain and underpin a lot of our automatic subconscious functioning. Your appetite, your temperature regulation, your blood pressure and breathing rate are all coordinated there. When you wake up in the morning and when you go to sleep and feel tired at night, that's all a function of your hypothalamus and your pineal gland is intrinsically an intrinsic part of that and densely wired up to many of those functions but has a very close relationship with the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is your body clock. And that's a cluster of nerve cells that keep time for you. And the pineal gland is wired into those circuits. It knows what time of day and night it is. And it also has a role in secreting the hormone melatonin. And melatonin is a sleep signal. And when you make melatonin, it helps to send the body off to sleep and make you feel tired. And when you switch off that signal, you feel more awake. And so it is part and parcel of the way in which our body responds to the day-night cycle and our sleep-wake cycle. Let's go to another voice note, uh, Joe. Hi, this is a message or a question for um, this, the Naked Scientist. Um, I was getting headaches, terrible, terrible migraines for years, years and years and years, and they were just getting worse and worse and worse. Um, nobody could figure out what it was. I went to all different kinds of doctors. And eventually, I found out that I had stomach ulcers. Now, since I've been treating the stomach ulcers, the headaches seem to have gone away. Why would this be? Can stomach ulcers cause terrible headaches? Thanks. Bye. Well, I don't know the direct answer to this, but I would speculate that if you have stomach ulcers, that has to be happening for a reason. Now, one reason we get stomach ulcers is stress. And that can impact on us in a range of different ways. It can impact on us directly because activating stress circuits in your nervous system can make over-secretion of acid. It can also cause you to not eat and drink properly and not take exercise and therefore not look after yourself. People also, if they smoke, may smoke more when they're stressed. All these things we know can have an impact on the initiation but also the progression of ulcer disease. But those sorts of things also will make you feel run down. And one of the commonest causes of a headache is a tension headache. When you sit there hunched over your desk or your laptop and you've got so much going on, so much on your plate, that all your muscles tense up and those give you headaches. But also you don't look after yourself when you're in those sorts of conditions and so you might become more dehydrated and, and you can see how all these things fit together. So while I can't think of an immediate reason why an ulcer in and of itself, apart from raising the overall inflammatory tone in your body, might therefore be linked to a headache. I think it's more likely that what is upstream of the ulcer has some commonalities with what can be upstream of headaches, and I suspect the two are connected in that way. And when you got better from the ulcers and took away the lifestyle factors that were exacerbating that problem and making you also notice that problem more, that because that was also linked to the same upstream stresses and strains that were also able to cause the headaches unsurprisingly when one got better so did the other we have elizabeth um on the line uh, elizabeth go ahead um yes I, I have a comment and if there's time a question um the the dog thing apparently that whole alpha dog uh thing has been debunked because a lot of it was um 
the guy who, who thought about it was someone who had studied dogs in captivity. And they say that's not really valid. It's a bit like an anthropologist going into a prison and, um, you, you know, studying, he studied wolves and that's how he came upon it. But they say that it's, that whole alpha male um, thing is not as clear cut as we think it is. Okay, we, we're going to have to, unfortunately, wrap it there. Um, your response to Elizabeth's, uh, I think, statement rather than question. Well, I, I can only say that we don't know because we can't ask dogs directly. There are a range of views. Uh, these dogs are social animals that have a pecking order, and it therefore seems not unreasonable since the dog is subservient to its owner. When you remove the owner, then one of the animals, in the same way as if you remove the pack leader from a pack, a new animal steps up. It doesn't seem altogether surprising. While we were just chatting, I also had a look about moths. And there was a study from Princeton in about 2005 that found that some of these scales on the moth's wings are independent of colour. So it doesn't entirely explain. It's not just down to colour. Some people speculate it might be something to do with how they regulate temperature. They don't seem to need the scales to fly. So we don't really know exactly what that dust is. But it it is also coming from the pigmented parts of the wings, so it may also be shed skin scales, which are modified hairs, actually, which is how they get their colour. But we don't know entirely is the answer. And we thank you for your time. Uh, Dr Chris Smith is the Naked Scientist, a lecturer at the University of Cambridge, and he answers our questions every Friday just after 9.30.